Specialty Story, session number 177. Whether you are a pre-med or a medical student, you've answered the calling to become a physician. Soon you'll have to start deciding what type of medicine you'll want to practice. This podcast will tell you the stories of specialists from every field to give you the information to make sure you make the most informed decision possible when it comes to choosing your specialty. Welcome to Specialty Stories. My name is Dr. Ryan Gray, your host here every week where I get to speak with amazing physicians about their specialty. And this week, I have another amazing physician, Dr. Izzy Lowell, here to talk about trans medicine and how she got into trans medicine and to talk about her journey to trans medicine. We talk all about what it's about, why it's important, and how potentially you can get involved as well. We start the conversation with how Dr. Izzy Lowell first became interested in trans medicine. Great question. When I was in med school, I actually initially thought I wanted to go into pathology because I loved histology. I loved um, working with the microscope. And um, I'm kind of an introvert by nature. So I thought pathology, that was what I was applying for in beginning of fourth year. Um, I did some rotations in path and I just didn't love it. Um, I thought this isn't quite the thing for me. It um, turns out I liked working with people. Um, I still wasn't sure what I wanted to do. So I actually took the GRE. I thought about applying to PhD programs and PH programs. I wasn't sure quite where I wanted to go. Um, and then I just kind of re- took, took stock very late, like October of fourth year and thought, <laughs> what do I really want to do? And it all came down to why I went to med school in the first place, which was to help people. And I chose family medicine at that time because it was the specialty most in tune with public health and with helping people on kind of a broad scale, not just one one cog at a time trying to help people, which I think is very valuable. But to me, that felt frustrating to be trying to treat one tiny thing right here in front of me when there's such huge, huge um, things that we could be working on kind of nationally and globally. So I chose family medicine for that reason at the time, and then turned out I did something completely different with it. But um, but I still think that public health is critically important to the field of medicine. Yeah. And then specifically transgender medicine, where does that come into play? Why why do you have a, a passion for treating transgender patients? Yeah, so, so I identify as a lesbian, um, and my gender identity is sort of, I would say it's complicated, but I, den- I use she, her pronouns. Um, and I always thought that I've always been frustrated by unfairness and sort of um, poor representation. And and in medicine, certainly when I was going to med school, um, gosh, over a decade ago, there was very little taught about LGBTQ medicine. Um, I think that's improved in a lot of places now, but there's still room for improvement. And there was really a gap in care um, in med school and in residency. And then when I finished residency, um, I moved down to Atlanta, Georgia and took a job teaching at the Emory Family Medicine Program. And still there was nothing, kind of not really any focus on LGBTQ medicine, certainly not transgender medicine. So when I was there, about a year in, I said to the administrative folks, I think we need a trans clinic. And they said, that's great, but there actually aren't any trans patients um, in Atlanta. (laughs) And I said, I think there are. I think we just don't hear about it because we're not very friendly. And so I said, look, I'll do, I'll start this clinic. I'll just see patients one day a week. And they're all concerned about profit. You know, it's all about money ultimately for these big systems. So, yeah. and Emory's great. No, no, 
nothing to dis Emory. That's just across the board. So I said, look, I'll do this for free. Don't pay me until this clinic becomes profitable. And it was at a residency program. So a pretty high no-show rate, you know, treating a lot of underserved populations. Um, and my clinic had the lowest no-show rate and the best attendance of, of any session at, at the, pro, at the residency program. So it turned out there was a huge need. Um, and from there I kind of expanded further, but, um, but it was really to, to fill a gap in, in care. And I, um, I just felt like trans people weren't being served. So let's talk about that, right? So uh, I think a lot of students listening to this, right? We, we have to assume kind of normal makeup of our country, very half conservative, half liberal. Uh, a lot of people listening to this will go, why do transgender people need their own kind of specialty? Why does someone need to have a clinic specifically for transgender patients? Why can't they just go see a quote unquote normal family practice doctor, internal medicine doctor? Excellent question. Um, and the short answer is that they can and they should. Mm. This shouldn't be a specialty field. If you're transgender, non-binary, and you want hormone therapy, you don't need to go to an endocrinologist. This is well within the um, confines of primary care. This is something that all primary care doctors could do. Um, it's just not taught. And so people say, most primary care doctors, especially in the South, say, you know, I, I, that's outside my scope. I wasn't taught that. I'm not going to do that. No. Um, whether it's because they don't feel medically competent and or their personal beliefs, it's hard to say. But a lot of really well-meaning primary care docs who won't think this is valuable will still say, I don't know what I'm doing. It's more out of, out of not understanding it. And it's, it's the medicine is actually really simple. It's a lot easier than say diabetes. And you would never say, oh, I, I, I think diabetes is great. I just don't treat diabetes. <laughs> yeah. You'd never say that. Um, so it's, it's a lot, a lot of lack of training. I think, sure. There are a lot of people who don't think this is something that should be done period. Mm. And that's one thing, but I think much more commonly, people don't know how to provide this care. And so they're sort of afraid of doing the wrong thing and say, you know what, forget, it. I'm just going to send them to an endocrinologist. Mm. So this is, it's really, the medicine is simple. And I don't think there should be specialty clinics specifically for transgender people. I think this should be like anything else, like thyroid disease. It's about as common as thyroid malfunction and about as easy to treat, frankly. And everybody should be able to go to their PCP and get this care. Right now, that's not the case especially down in the South in Georgia, Alabama, Mississippi, um, some of the states we cover. So because of that, QMED exists. I started QueerMed, um, known as QMED or QueerMed, because of that issue, because people can't go to their PCP. Um, they could be in danger you know, of verbal abuse or worse. Um, it's sometimes not truly not safe for a transgender person to seek medical care. So that's why we exist. We cover now nine, maybe 10 states in the Southeast via virtual medicine so people can feel safe getting the care that they need. It's not ideal. This shouldn't be how trans people get their care, but it's what we've got right now. Yeah. It's a, it's a first step, hopefully in a, a long line of, of improving it. Talk, talk about some of the biggest myths or misconceptions around transgender medicine that, that you're constantly fighting in, in terms of those coming up through training residents, medical students, et cetera. The biggest one is probably that it's complicated. It's mm. not complicated. It's really not. You take a person whose gender identity doesn't match their gender, their sex assigned at birth, and you increase whichever hormone they're lacking and you decrease the other ones. So if they're assigned female at birth and they want to be masculine, you give them testosterone. 
if they were assigned male at birth and they want to be feminine, you give them estrogen. It's pretty, it's almost as simple as that. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think the biggest myth for medical folks is that it's complicated. It's not. Um, And then I think another concern, um, both from the medical side and from families, especially regarding kids and teens, is that, bam, overnight, suddenly someone's going to become a man or become a woman. Mm. And it's not, doesn't work that way. It's like going through puberty again. It takes years. It usually takes two or three years to see the full effect of hormones. It's, it's a very long process. So you can prescribe someone testosterone or estrogen and if they like it, great. And they feel better on that medicine. Great. Our whole goal is to make people feel better, to heal, to make people well. Um, if they don't like it, if it doesn't suit them, they can just stop. And it takes a while to to see permanent irreversible changes. So people are very afraid of that. And I think that's sort of an overblown fear. Yeah. Talk talk about it. I think one of the biggest things that comes up in terms of an objection to transgender medicine or or transitioning, um, as many people know it, it, it is the regret or transition regret or whatever the the I don't know the technical term and you can you can inform me and teach me. Um I, I think there's potential misconception that it happens a lot versus not often. What what does that actually look like in, in practice? Great question. I think this is really important and something that's top of mind, especially when dealing with teenagers. Um, in my practice at, at QueerMed, we start hormone therapy in some cases as young as 13, mm. once in a while, a little under, like late 12s for teens. And so co- commonly people will say, especially parents, how can they know that this is what they want? We're talking about irreversible, you know, reversible with surgical intervention, but basically irreversible changes for someone who's very young. Um, and it's true. This is a big undertaking for someone who's 13 to think about. But And people say, you know, I didn't know who I was. I didn't know who I was attracted to. I didn't know my sexuality. I didn't know any. I didn't know the first thing about who I was when I was 12 or 13. And you can say, yeah, I didn't either. But did you know what gender you were? when you were 13. And most people would say, duh, of course I did. I knew I was a boy or a girl. Um, That's not something that we really question beyond the very beginnings of puberty. Um, Gender is very solidified. So I take great comfort in that if someone's entered puberty or or been through puberty, it's very, very unlikely that they're going to change their mind. Um, That said, once in a while, you do have people that that choose to quote unquote detransition, but I don't like that term because it implies a going backward that you like something was incorrect in in transitioning in the first place. I think for a lot of people, it's more of a journey. Um, in my practice, I, we have probably over two thousand patients, and I've had two people choose to come off hormone therapy of of out of two thousand wow. in four years. So that's our rate of choosing not to continue with hormone therapy. And in both cases, I think the issue was that they hadn't quite figured out that they were more of a non-binary identity than than fully trans, transgender no. and perhaps would have done well on a lower dose of hormone therapy or with a slower transition. And interestingly, neither of those people decided to go back on their cisgender hormone, i.e. back on the hormone that their body would produce, even though their body doesn't produce as much of it now. They, I think, ultimately ended up at sort of a more non-binary identity. Neither one had regret. It wasn't about regretting that they had done it in the first place. It was about a journey through, oops, I was on more medicine than I should have been. Now I'm going to take less medicine or stop. And nobody regretted having done that. So I've had zero, zero cases of regret, two cases of people who've stopped taking hormone therapy. 
Yeah. It's, it's as you're describing that, right. The, I, I love, I love trying to like analogize things. I'm like, nobody knows if they want to wear the red shirt or the, the blue shirt until they try it on. I'm like, nope, that's not me. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, like, it's hard. Yeah. 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 And, and that makes a little bit light of it, but because it's something that people have thought about for a long time, but still, I mean, it's exactly as you say, you know, we have, there's plenty of time to, to change one's mind even after we start a medicine. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Talk about some of the the traits that make someone be a good family practice doc and, and specifically a transgender medicine physician. That's a great question. I think in terms of family medicine, I think there's no one trait that would make you a great family medicine doctor um, other than wanting to help people, I think, because it's a very hands-on specialty. Um, there are so many different paths in medicine. And for me, starting out in family medicine, my biggest concern is that I would be sort of overwhelmed and very drained by it. And I am off the charts introverted and seeing a full day of patients absolutely wiped me out. I love it, but it, I'm, I got nothing left at the end of the day. And so for me, I've sort of organized my life and career where I see patients right now. I see patients probably about a half a day a week at Queer Med. Um, I have three nurse practitioners who are awesome working for me. And then a lot of my time, like today, I spent most of the day doing admin and billing. Um, and I don't mind that work. Um, I think I'm more suited to that than to seeing patients actually. Um, although I do love seeing patients, seeing patients just exhausts me, um, something I still do, but, um, and I work in the hospital and hospital work is sort of more under my control. I can make my rounds as I, as I want to and, and run my day as I see fit. So I do a couple hospital shifts a month lately. I've been doing a ton, but, um, normally a few hospital shifts a month. So I would say there's no perfect characteristics about being a family medicine doctor. In terms of transgender medicine, again, all you need is to be kind, to, to be open-minded, kind, um, and welcoming to a patient population that's really struggled and had often pretty bad experiences with healthcare providers. So being someone that can take the time to help mend that relationship between this person and the medical field um, is important. But um, And again, desire to help people. Yeah. In the transgender medicine world, I guess the the transgender world um, in general, with the new administration, President Biden uh, nominated Dr. Levine, who's like the first openly transgender federal official that that potentially would be confirmed. I don't think she's been confirmed yet. Um, How do you think having someone kind of uh, who's obviously openly transgender, how do you think that's going to have a, a trickle-down effect into the, the medical world? I think it's huge. I think it's a real statement by the Biden administration that this is this is how things are going to be, that it's okay to be transgender. Um, LGBTQ support and rights, I think, will take take um, a step forward. First, they'll take an, an untake a step backwards, and then they'll take some steps forwards. I think it's so symbolic to say we this is this is a an administration that cares about everybody where everybody is equal and um, hopefully there'll be more of a focus on this because this is this is really one of unfortunately many gaps in our healthcare system but this is a big gap we're really not serving this population well and it's a big part of our country there's estimates of between somewhere somewhere between 0.3 and 0.6 percent of people are transgender which is a huge number of people. Um, 1.4 million, they say, in the U.S., which is probably vastly undercounted. But this is about as common as type 1 diabetes. And that's something wow. where we have tons of funding and, and resources 
for. Um, so I think this is a very under underrepresented population among others. Um, and I'm really optimistic for, for the new administration. Yeah. What does a typical day look like for you? Oh, great question. Depends on the day. So, so today I, um, had my kids for a bit in the morning, they're two and four, um, wonderful. And then came into the office for the afternoon to do some billing and schedule, just sort of practice admin stuff. Um, tomorrow, um, and Wednesday I'm doing some backup shifts at the hospital. Um, they're just completely overwhelmed right now. Um, and thankfully I got my vaccine. So hmm. I'm doing sort of the, the COVID floors tomorrow and Wednesday. And then Thursday afternoons I do, um, that's like my designated time to fight with insurance companies. So I do a lot of billing on Thursday afternoons. That's like, um, you know, toward the end of the week, it's like fight with the insurance company all day. And then I get to go home and have a beer. It's almost Friday. Um, and then Fridays are just kind of mostly at home again with the family. Um, sometimes I work hospital shifts. There's certain days of the week that, that I'm open for shifts, um, that I try to keep pretty mellow from, from queer med. Um, Tuesday afternoons, I see patients at queer med. So tomorrow I'm actually doing hospital in the morning and then I'll probably see some patients in the afternoon. Um, but, uh, yeah, just kind of depends on the day and, and variety of things. Yeah. Do you feel like, uh, with, with juggling everything, you have enough time for life outside of the hospital and clinic? Yeah. You know, when I first started queer med, I was absolutely overwhelmed with starting a business, start, starting a practice, all the logistics of it, which are incredibly complex. Unlike transgender medicine, starting a practice <laughs> is really, really, really complicated. Um, so the first year or so I was just super busy, but now things, I've got a lot of things on autopilot. I have no staff, so I don't have any administrators or, or, um, MAs, medical assistants or nurses or anything. So it's just me and my three nurse practitioners who, whose only job is to see patients. So I do all the rest of the admin and business side of it and, um, communicating with patients. And then I, I have an app on my phone. That's the, our voicemail for the practice. So, um, there's just a lot of small stuff, but it's really flexible. And so I think overall I'd have to count, but I probably work probably 20 hours a week at queer med right now. Um, and have a lot of time. I'm always, my wife's also a doctor. She has a regular nine to five job or eight to six or seven, maybe, um, at a clinic. She's also in family medicine and she does transgender medicine. It's just one thing among many that she does. She does all the things. Um, she, she does it how it should be done. Not me, but, um, (laughs) so, but she's got, she's, you know, always has to be at work. And so I'm the one that, that if a kid gets sick at school, I go pick them up. I'm, I'm like the, the fill in person. And I also get to run this business, which is really fun. And, and I make more money than I used to at my teaching job. So it's, uh, it's great. Nice. What, um, uh, what is the, the training process to, to enter transgender medicine? Are there specific training programs, ACGME fellowships, anything for that right now? Or is it all kind of just go, go find your passion and do it no matter what? Well, there's some trainings. Um, some, the, I don't think there's anything through officially through ACGME. Um, there are some training programs like the WPATH, the World Professional Association for Transgender Health has some training tracks. Um, I've been fairly outspoken against those in the past, and I'll say here briefly, I don't think that training path is really productive. It requires a ton of hours of shadowing and and additional work, and I think it's so thorough and exhaustive that it's counterproductive and mm-hmm. becomes prohibitive for someone who's in residency training or just out of, out of residency 
they're overwhelmed. You don't want to, you don't have time to spend, you know, a hundred hours on getting this, this certification. Um, I think transgender medicine, like I taught my, my nurse practitioners came to me without any background in transgender medicine, two out of the three. Um, and I hired them on the spot and said, I'll teach you everything you need to know. And because they're great people, because they're kind, caring, open-minded, wonderful people, and they can learn the medicine. It's, that's not complicated. So I think, um, I think it's overly much right now. It's like, it should be like thyroid hormone. You have, you know, you thyroid diseases, you learn how to manage thyroid problems, some in med school, some in residency, and then you learn it on the go. You look it up on up to date. You, you, there's tons of gaps. You can't learn everything in med school and residency. You're always looking up stuff. I look up things almost every day at the hospital. Um, it should be like that. Something that you look up and say, oh, here's, here's the labs I should be checking. Here's what I need to watch out for if I'm prescribing estrogen. Um, and then you move forward. Um, there's this fear associated with it because it's such a different thing um, that I wish weren't there that em- would embolden more people to, within reason, look something up. The UCSF guidelines are great. If you look, if you Google UCSF transgender guidelines, they have an incredible database and, and really easy to use. Here's what you need to know. Here's what you need to do. Um, it's it's like any other thing that you, oops, I forgot I wasn't paying attention that day in med school. You know, how do I dose vitamin D? You look it up. It's the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. Talk, talk about for the future pediatrician listening to this and even internal medicine, family practice doc um, for someone later in life, how can they make sure that their practice is set up in a way to support their patients. Um, obviously, I think most people know that um, suicide rates among transgender patients is is astronomically high. How, how do we get to those patients sooner, make them feel comfortable to open up to their providers? That's a really good question. Um, I'd say there's there's some really complex answers about how to make your practice super trans-friendly, but the basic answer that I would give is is simple things like asking what's your preferred name what are your what gender pronouns do you use that question alone what pronouns do you use is hugely in is it stands for so much more than that simple question to someone who's not transgender they say oh that um you know she her what that's an interesting question but to someone who's trans or non-binary especially if they don't have a lot of support systems that's a huge cue that says i i get this i know about gender i know that your gender may not match your sex assigned at birth or your body. Like I'm aware of that. I'm a safe person to talk to about that. It really says more about the person asking the question. If that's say on your intake forms, you know, preferred name, gender pronouns, sex assigned at birth, separate those things out. That is a cue to someone who might not feel comfortable otherwise talking about it that, Oh, this, this is a safe space. For, um, for the, the future pediatricians, again, listening to this and, and family practice docs, the primary care docs out there, what do you wish they knew about transgender medicine, again, to, to help their patients and help you in the future do your job? Again, just that it's not that complicated. I mean, yeah. anybody in the in the Southeast region of the United States can refer patients directly to us um, as we cover um, basically every everything from Mississippi to uh, Kentucky, West Virginia, that whole quadrant of the country. Um, but I would just encourage people to to take a few minutes, spend 10, 15 minutes looking it up and and get a sense for for what's involved. Um, and and people still may say, you know, I don't have time to to learn a whole new thing. I'm super busy. Or they may say, oh, it's not as as complicated as I thought. 
um, with the young kids, with teens and puberty blockers and, and involving the family and everything, it's always more complicated to do those visits and to talk with parents who are really nervous about it. So that does take some practice. Um, but it's well within the scope of care for a pediatrician or family doc or an internal medicine doc. Yeah. Are there any other specialties that as a transgender medicine specialist that you work the closest with? Um, I have some endocrinology colleagues uh, in Atlanta who um, are sort of, there are only a handful of folks. There's actually two endocrinologists um, and me in the whole city of Atlanta who provide care to people under 18, Mm -hmm. to transgender non-binary people under the age of 18. So it's a pretty small community. Um, We all know each other pretty well. Um, But the majority of people that I work with are therapists, um, social workers by training, typically, sometimes psychologists and psychiatrists. But the I have a huge network across nine states of therapists who see a lot of transgender patients and over time have gotten to know us and send us all their patients. Um, and we have a great network of people to refer patients to because even though being transgender isn't actually a medical problem, it's just, we like in in medicine to have diagnoses so that we can treat them. Like we diagnose pregnancy, which is a totally normal thing, but we like to diagnose it. Um, I'd say the same about being transgender. It's not a medical problem, but it is something that's, that's important to treat and treat appropriately and respectfully. And it can be really disruptive. So someone starting hormone therapy, you know, say in a small town in Alabama or Mississippi may go through a lot of challenges that have nothing to do with with a medical problem, more to do with the outside world reacting to them in their process of becoming their true self. So it's really helpful to have support um, because it's such a challenging process in the South, in this country right now. So um, that support system is huge. So huge, um, tons of of connections with social workers. And then of course, surgeons. Um, I've got my surgeons who do chest surgery, um, breast augmentation, and um, it's fairly, a, a lot less common right now for people to have like phalloplasty or vaginoplasty, sort of quote unquote bottom surgery. But there are a couple of great surgeons in the in the country doing that, and more and more techniques are getting better. So I work with a lot of surgeons. Yeah. What do you know now that you wish you knew before going into transgender medicine? Gosh, um, uh, all the things, all the minutia about how to start a business. <laughs> um, <laughs> in medical school, didn't teach you uh, that. No, and I and I even went to business school, uh, and and that doesn't teach you. It's yeah. business school teaches you the big. You know, I went to an executive business program um, after med school, after um, residency, while I was working at Emory. I went to the Emory Cazueta, uh Business School. Absolutely loved it. Just best. I was working um, mostly full time at Emory and then doing the executive business courses. And that was so much fun. It was so much fun to be in a, an educational environment that wasn't like be all end all. I was like, gonna, still going to be a doctor even if I failed out of business school. Um, so it was really fun. And that was, that gave me the confidence, I think, to start my own practice. But um, the there's a thousand tiny, tiny things that you just have to figure out as you get to them, things that you can't, you know, no one else can explain to you. And it's just, that first year was difficult. And I wish I knew all the, those things already, but now I know. Yeah. What do you like the most about practicing transgender medicine? You make people so happy. Like if, if people with diabetes or high blood pressure were this excited about taking their medicine <laughs> and this thrilled to see the doctor, I mean, med- medicine would be a different breed. It, yeah. It's just the coolest thing. It literally is life-saving. I've had, you know, unfortunately, a lot of teens 
come to us after suicide attempts. That's usually the thing that makes their parents say, okay, we're going to take this seriously and do something about it reluctantly. But they're like, all right, I'd rather have a live kid than who's transgender than, than not have my kid. Mm -hmm. So that's where families start with us. And it's, it can be really challenging, but at the end of the day, you're giving someone a potentially life-saving treatment that they're really excited about. And they're so happy to see you. People love seeing us and following up and, and it's just really fun. You know, nobody likes going to the doctor except our patients. They really yeah. like going to the doctor. Yeah. Uh, outside of your Thursday afternoons arguing with insurance companies, what's your least favorite part of the day or part, part of your job? Uh, again, billing. Um, so a lot of our patients are, are, don't have insurance, um, yep. are underemployed, are in their twenties, um, don't have a lot of money, don't understand the medical system. Um, my absolute least favorite thing, which has to do with insurance companies, but not directly is, is the deductible. So for people who are under the age of 25 or 30, they, even if you're in medicine, I didn't know about deductibles until, I don't know, until I was a grown ass adult. Um, it, it's <laughs> it's like, still confusing as a grown ass adult. <laughs> and, and so they get you, insurance companies get you, they get yeah. the provider and they get the patient yeah. by saying, you know, everything's covered, you're in network, totally covered. Oops, it turns out it goes toward your deductible. So it's covered. So the patient thinks this care is covered and yeah. then they get a bill for 300 bucks. And I, it's my job, little old me, not the insurance company. I'm the one who has to go to the patient and say, you owe us a ton of money that you don't have, even though it was covered because yeah. your insurance company pulled this trick over on you that your deductible is $5,000. So you're yeah. never going to meet it. Um, and I have to tell the patients that, and I cannot, that's I, my, by far my least favorite part of my job. Yeah. Gotta love our our healthcare industry. <laughs> People pay uh, pick their insurance not based on coverage, but based on what's going to be the cheapest every month, and that's the of one course. that's the most out of pocket, unfortunately, for everyone. So, yep. not good. Where where do you see the world of transgender medicine going? Uh, any any major changes that someone coming up in medicine right now as a as a medical student, resident, et cetera, that they, they should be um, looking at or thinking about? I think it's going to just become more common. Um, like being transgender and non-binary has been become more common. People feel more comfortable expressing that. And I think it's going to like the next generation of doctors, we're going to be fine in like five to 10 years. Things are going to be a lot better. Um, I do lots of lecturing at med schools and, and residency programs. Um, the excitement and interest from our current med students and residents is extraordinary. So I think if they can can get enough support to feel confident doing this or to just say, you know, I'm going to do it. I'm going to figure this out and I'm just going to do it um, one patient at a time. I think my hope actually is that queer med will go out of business, that there won't <laughs> be a need for, for this specialty telemedicine practice anymore because people will be able to get this in their hometown mm -hmm. from their regular doctor who's not a jerk and just can provide this this med this not complicated treatment um, appropriately. Yeah. Any last words of wisdom for the student listening to this uh, or resident listening to this uh, for their journey potentially to check out transgender medicine or to incorporate um, safer uh, practices in their in their practice for transgender patients? I think um, before you say you can't do it, read read a little bit about it. Um, and then um, see if you can find anybody who's who's doing it. Shadow with somebody, um, 
it's again, it's not it's not super complicated. I have faith that you can do it. Um, and and same with family medicine. I think a lot of people think of it as just a primary care field. That I don't want to be. I don't want to have a nine to five, eight to six primary care job. Um, just seeing patients for things that we can't fix very easily. Um, family medicine has so many different opportunities in it. You can do all sorts of different things and really choose a path within that broad specialty um, to to meet your needs and to be exciting professionally. All right, there you have it. Again, Dr. Izzy Lowell talking about her journey to trans medicine and taking care of trans patients. Very important discussion that it's very interesting, right? She even mentioned that she hopes that there's no role for specific trans medicine physicians in the future. It should just be part of normal patient care. If you want to learn more about trans medicine, the Endocrine Society has some information at endocrine.org. Have a great week. We'll see you next time here on Specialty Stories. Mm-hmm.